Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. Jason, welcome back to the program. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. I look forward to a great conversation. So last time I had you on, I think we did talk around the CIO Council things, and then I think I had you on when you first started at education. So there's a lot to catch up on. There's a lot going on. But I'm going to start maybe at, at a newer priority because it's something that we every place we go, every conference we, we are at, we hear about it, IT modernization. So let's maybe start at the IT modernization. What is education doing? Moving apps to the cloud, upgrading network through EIS. There's so much going on. Give me, give me the sense of the IT modernization strategy you're looking to implement. Our strategy really is not just about IT, meaning I know that it's about IT modernization, but the first part of our strategy, of course, was getting support. You need to have support for your strategy. You start internal. Uh, I have a really solid, uh, excellent team that have become uh, modernization evangelists, if you will. And then working with the secretary and deputy secretary, both of them have been extremely supportive of uh, our modernization efforts, our roadmap, and where we're going. Uh, and I give regular updates uh, to both of them several times a month. So uh, they're, they're very interested and very supportive, which is great. And then from there, there's also the principal offices and working with them to make sure they're aware of what we're doing uh, from a strategy standpoint and a modernization standpoint because they are the consumers of the services that we're talking about modernizing. And then also the CXO community as well, making sure that the, the chief acquisition officer and uh, the Chico and chief financial officer are involved as well. So one is, is gaining support. Uh, and then I wanted to share some of the things that we're doing uh, as it relates to IT modernization, but it's, it's not specific, perhaps, IT. Uh, as an example, policy and guidance. Uh, we have looked at our policy and guidance and in some cases reshaped uh, the way that we're actually doing uh, policy and guidance. An example is our cybersecurity policies. We're in, are in the process of updating that policy framework where at the top of it we will have the policy which as many know take quite a while to get through the process and they take a while to update. I remember at uh, my hearing in May, uh, I remember being asked the question of when is this policy done and it takes quite a while. So what we've done is we've changed so that we have the policy at the top, but then we're also introducing instructions and standards at a layer below. And what that allows is it allows us to be more agile as technology changes and security changes specifically. We can adapt quicker instead of having to implement policy and then wait for the process to actually implement. So that's an example of one policy. We also have our IT ma investment management policy that we're updating and in the process of updating by the end of this year. That is more of a streamlined uh, approach, removing some of the red tape, a lot of the red tape. Uh, we also have uh, an enterprise program uh, review framework uh, from a total governance standpoint that we're modernizing. We also have, and I know I've talked about this before, our cybersecurity framework risk scorecard. So that that is more of an administrative tool or control that is helping us and it certainly revamped the way that we not only view uh, or are able to display and convey some of the cyber posture challenges that we face at the department, but it, it, it's been very helpful uh, for providing transparency, not only internally, but also to our customers. So that is uh, a few of the things. We also are uh, planning for the future. 
uh, one of the things that we look at, and I know when I first arrived, we talked about transitioning to a shared service for financial management. Uh, one of the things that was found before I actually arrived here and it was shared with me is that our financial management system is integrated with our grants management system, which became a limiting factor of being able to uh, consume uh, or leverage uh, a shared service. So what we're looking at going forward, and we do have a five-year plan, as a part of that plan, we're looking at decoupling our grants management system from the financial management system, as well as enhancing first exploring whether or not there's shared services that can do this for us, which is great, uh, meaning provide grant services or financial management services, uh, but then decoupling them so that as we modernize our those systems, grants and financial management, that they are, are ready, their shared services ready. Uh, so those are a couple of the things that we uh, are doing. Uh, I know that I, you also mentioned about EIS. I'm definitely looking forward to uh, transitioning to EIS uh, to continue our network modernization efforts uh, by leveraging things like SD-WAN, uh, broadband, and LTE, which will allow us to shift from a fixed bandwidth to uh, consumption-based network management. Uh, so that's those a few. A few things on the plate. So let me, I'm going to back up all the way to the beginning and talk about the strategy around it and the support. And it's interesting, and, and, and I think kudos to you for, for recognizing that the first rule of anything is communicate, and then the second rule is communicate, and then the third rule is communicate again, because until you get that communication loop complete and, and solid, nothing else can happen. So what's the reaction been, generally speaking, as you've gone to the deputy secretary and secretary, to the CXO community, to the mission offices and say, here's what we're going to do, here's how we're going to make your life better. Do they go, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before, are they excited? What's the reaction? It varies. There's some apprehension. A lot of the question that comes up right away is, okay, and how are we going to do that? And then the reality is we need to partner with the system owners and the stakeholders to make sure that we do it in a way that provides uh, the services that they actually need and the business value. So there's been that reaction. I will say talking with the, I remember the first briefing with the secretary on it, and we talked about reducing the number of IT systems from, by over 100 IT systems. And, and I, I can't forget the question she said is, can we reduce it more? And it was more of the efficient and effective use, meaning do we absolutely need these systems? And when we looked at it, the answer is, well, no, we don't. And Literally, as of now, our plan, as we transition over the next five years, will be reducing our systems by over 100 systems. And we have 284 systems today. So that's a pretty significant uh, drop. So th the response has been, been varied, but very supportive. Uh, people understand what we're doing, why we're doing it. Our next step, to your point about communication, is we're actually doing principal office by principal office uh, visits to walk through. We have very detailed diagrams that show specifically what happens from the current state to the 2B state of where we're going from a modernization standpoint. Some of the details are not there yet because that's something that will need to be engineered and worked out. At this point, it's this is the proposal on a direction that we that we believe we should go as a result of the cost savings and the, the benefits to the department, uh, the, the reduction in security. Uh, so that's where we're at right now. You actually answered my next question because I was going to ask how do you keep this going because one of the big challenges is you tell people it's happening and then they don't hear from you again for six months or a year and they go, oh, that failed again. So it's a constant need to communicate. 
you talk about the visits to the principal office, you talk about regular meetings with the secretary and deputy secretary. I imagine you have regular meetings with the other CXOs as well. And then there's your staff, because they have to be the ones that are driving this as well. So maybe talk a little bit about the, 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 the discussions or, or the strategy with your internal staff and contractors to kind of really pick up and move things forward. Uh, I'm, I can just guess here there's an agile, iterative discussion we're going to have a little bit. Absolutely. So th that's a it's a very dynamic conversation that we have, and it literally happens every single day right after uh, our meeting. I will be having a conversation specifically about that. And it's really the, the great thing is, is that the team that we have here, and I will say team collectively, contractor, government employees, they, they clearly understand what we're doing, what we're trying to do, uh, and the value that it provides to the department. So everyone is behind that because there's a lot of moving pieces that are involved with the modernization efforts. We have to keep track and communicate continuously on that. We also, as an example, when we walk through our acquisition plans and our budgeting strategy for our budget formulation, we have those conversations about, okay, and how are each of these acquisitions aligned or in support of our modernization strategy? So it really, it, it takes it down to a level from more of a, you know, a, not just planning, but implementing and tying the two together. You mentioned budget and acquisition, and um, we may get to that as we kind of talk closer, but let me ask from a budget perspective, one of the big challenges that every agency faces, every CIO faces, is the do more with less, right? Your budget is flat, maybe, go, maybe going down a little bit, maybe a tick up if you're lucky, but how are you kind of modernizing on a budget that is potentially flat or going down? We actually have done cost models uh, using uh, Monte Carlo analysis to understand of our modernization efforts which is going to provide the most bang for the buck. And the, the key thing we want to do up front is by providing small, quick wins so that we're perhaps, and in several instances, low cost or no cost. Uh, so what we really want to do is demonstrate the value of the modernization efforts, which, again, we'll demonstrate, and then the need to invest uh, will come from the cost savings. We've also looked at leveraging uh, TMF and MGT. Uh, we can't leverage MGT right now, but we are definitely looking at uh, TMF, the TMF uh, piece. Uh, so that's that is one way. Uh, we've got several projects that are that are teed up. We have not submitted them yet. We're still going through the process of reviewing them. Uh, I am. Uh, so that's one way. Uh, I know I've talked a bit about cloud consolidation, uh, which can lead into, uh, I know we've talked about this before, one of the discoveries of the uh, visualization effort is we found out that we had 25 uh, cloud uh, contracts for cloud service providers, different cloud service providers. And I, I understand how the cloud sprawl happened. Uh, in the past, you, you had a principal office that needed a service. The IT organization couldn't provide the service, and it was easy to go and get it somewhere else. So now we've changed that. We've said you have to come through OCIO, uh, which is good. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean we won't go or allow another cloud service provider, but what it does is it gives us an opportunity from an, an enterprise view and to make sure that we're uh, making those decisions informed. All right, I have to ask you because it's a new term. I've heard of TBM. I've heard of the joys of uh, A11 and, and A123 and, and CPIC, and, but Monte Carlo, is this an, is, am I going to have to know what this means now going forward? Is this a new term for no. the federal? <laughs> no, it's a statistical analysis process, which is basically how, and I am certainly not an expert at it, but it's, it's basically how you're sampling and testing uh, use cases, if you will. 
you have several scenarios. We had several thousand scenarios that went through. Uh, this is an 80% solution, a 90% confidence, 80% confidence. There's plenty more to follow up there, but let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can jump back into some of these things. My guest is Jason Gray, the Education Department Chief Information Officer. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. Jason, before break, we were talking a lot about kind of your IT modernization and the, the kind of the strategy behind the strategy, if you will. And one of the things you mentioned was some policy and guidance, re-looking at it, reshaping it. And I want to just jump into a little bit the, the cybersecurity side. You talked about you're putting together a framework, and then under that framework, there'll be instructions and standards. Can you just maybe talk a little bit more about what that's going to eventually look like? Right now, as I was mentioning before, we have a high-level policy, which takes a, a process to get through, and then we have instructions and standards. And what we've done is we've taken our high-level cybersecurity policy, we're in the process of doing this, of taking our high-level uh, cybersecurity policy for the department and making it even more high level and then breaking down the components of it within the instructions because it allows us to adjust and modify them quicker. We've also made sure that they're aligned with the NIST cybersecurity framework with identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, uh, so that it's very easy to align with what we're doing as it relates to the framework. And the standards and directives would fall under each of those identify, protect. You have one for each almost or, or several for each. That is correct. The end goal here is, as you said, so as things change, as the threats change, you don't have to rewrite your entire policy. You can just kind of change that directive or change that standard. It's, it's very DOD-like in some ways. It actually is very DOD-like, and that's where we really got the idea from. And what it does, it does allow us to be agile. So, for example, if there are components in the recover area, as an example, instead of having to rewrite the entire policy, great, we're going to rewrite the uh, recover instruction and be done with it, and we don't have to go through the entire uh, routing process. In many ways, it sounds like a very smart approach because the way things change so quickly with cybersecurity. I mean, I mean just back in September, there was the Congress passed, I think, 18 bills, and 12 of them out of the Senate Homeland Security Government Affairs Committee was, were, were cyber, and then the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee passed 15 bills and six were cyber, and, and if any of those get to law, it will probably affect you just as quickly. So uh, the other uh, thing I want to talk about also was something we've spoken in the past is the cyber risk scorecard. It's an, it's something else that we're starting to see from a lot of agencies. Maybe talk a little about what it is, how it works, and, and where is it going. So we, in September of last year, we actually implemented, so we're, we're just about a year old now, a cybersecurity framework risk scorecard. And what it does is we assess all of our systems through this, and it, it assesses the risk posture as it relates to identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, and down to the, to the specific elements, to the POAM level, the plan of action and milestone level. And the way that we use it, one, is we, and this gets briefed directly to the secretary and deputy secretary every month because it gets updated every month. We walk through, we look at trends of whether or not there's improvements. The actual detailed reports, we have a very high-level one that just is, you know, blue, green, uh, red, and yellow. And we also have very detailed reports that goes down to the number of POAMs, the number of open POAMs, the number of risk acceptance forms, those sorts of things. So it allows us to inform uh, all the way from the system owner level uh, or to uh, a technician level all the way up to the secretary on this is the overall health and posture of 
uh, this system. The, the key, though, for me is, and now, and I know we high-value assets is real key, we've had a lot of conversation with all of our high-value asset owners, and we've walked through, and we actually do that on a recurring basis. I believe in the first week of October, we will finish uh, a, a round of going through all of them. Uh, to evaluate where are you at? Uh, are there obstacles? Are there things that, that I can get involved with and help uh, overcome them? Uh, but uh, the scorecard serves and it's evolved over time uh, because we're finding ways to improve, but it pulls directly from our, our authoritative source on for POAMS, provides uh, the information to the system owner, the ISSO, uh, and the secretary. And what this also allows you to do is if there's a change in the system, if, if it's red one day or blue one day and it goes to red in the, the next month, that alerts you as, as the chief information officer, alerts your CISO that something has to be done or something went wrong or there's a problem that has to be corrected immediately. It's not quite continuous monitoring, though. Are you, is that the end goal? The end goal actually is, is for this to be more automated so that it is near real time because that is the end goal because what we do now is every month I look at it and I will look for trends to see whether or not a specific area is having a challenge and then what are the things that we're doing about it and if I see that across several systems is there something bigger going on so that is one thing but to your point absolutely the the end goal is for it to be more continuous uh, in near real time. I want to put a finer point on this this is you aren't just looking at these systems monthly. That's when the scorecard comes out. But your CISO, your your systems administrators, the people who are running your security and probably report up to you, they are looking at this these systems all the time. Twenty four seven, three sixty five. Yes, we we are always looking at this. I am just looking at this on the trends. I get updates every single day, every single week, so I get to see this. But the great thing about the scorecard is it pulls it all together, so that I get to see all of our systems across the entire department in one pane of glass, if you will. And I think that is helpful because you can see, okay, we're having some problems in this area, or if it's a simple thing like, hey, this configuration management policy seems to be out of date, we're, we're running behind there, or is that the really the benefit is is the, the broader view versus the specific, hey, this, this system or that system? It is. Another thing we want to it to evolve to, and we're very close to getting there, is for it to be more proactive. So and projective so that what ends up happening is, and just to give you an example, one of the criteria, of course, is contingency plan testing. What we want to get to the point is so that that will always maintain a, a healthy state because at my level, if I see that there is or I know that, oh, this one is about to expire. Now, I know the system owners know that, but you know, again, this is just another way to help control and have visibility and give people awareness of, hey, just a reminder, this is something you need to make sure you're, you're taking care of. So, Jason, all of this leads me back down the, the broader discussion around cybersecurity, and, and every CIO I speak with has this challenge. First, let me start with the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program. Where are you at with that? What kind of uh, implementation are, are you starting to see? We're coming along well with CDM. And we're getting to see the, the data and the metrics. Uh, and what we're doing now is we're actually looking at expanding the services that we're leveraging to our clouds. I know we've been talking about our cloud service providers. We're looking at expanding to the clouds and our external service providers as well. Um, and again, the partnership that we've had with DHS has been phenomenal. They have been very good at, at working with us and helping us uh, navigate that process as well. So that's kind of where we're at now. So currently you have some of those capabilities or many of the capabilities of CDM that's in-house. And you're, and you're basically working with DHS. Okay, how can we take the defend 
capabilities uh, under task order, I guess, of phase two or two and a half, or they're calling it now, and, and extending that to cloud providers? That's correct. And is that something that's just a matter of putting the tools in between your network and the cloud, so to speak, or is it a matter of actually putting those tools in the provider's cloud? It's probably both, but the other piece that's really important is the contract language and making sure that we have the appropriate contract language in place to support. And I know there's some changes coming from OMB. There's a new uh, trusted internet connections policy that is, is due out. Uh, high value assets is due out. Data center consolidation is due out. So there's a bunch that are coming. Is from a CDM standpoint, there's a lot of frustration early on about in terms of how slow it was moving. Do you feel like at this point, from education's perspective, you guys are getting a lot of the value out of those tools, or, or is there still kind of a weighting of, of value? It's a process, and we're not quite where we certainly want, where I want us to be. Uh, we've got some work to do. Uh, the key for me is that for what we have implemented so far, it is working well. I want to expand it so that we have complete coverage of everything. Because it's great that I can see and have the visibility for a, a, a subset of what I'm responsible for, but I will feel much more comfortable if I have visibility into everything I'm responsible for. Let's broaden the discussion outside of just CDM, because I know that's just one piece to a big puzzle. Uh, and in fact, uh, as you well know, there's a recent report from GAO about federal student aid cybersecurity challenges, uh, specifically on securing personal information. I'm not going to ask you to, to comment on that GAO report. I think we can all read it ourselves. But that gives us a, a, a chance to ask the broader question about education has so much personal information. So much of what you do interacts with citizens, with students who want their data secure. So maybe talk, if you can, broadly speaking, about your data security and the challenges you face, but also what you're doing to ensure that, that all this data is secure. It, it is certainly one of those things that keeps me awake at night. But as it relates to, to overall, I mean, I've talked a little bit about the scorecard, which is one way we are definitely practicing defense in depth, and we have a whole slew of um, security tools and processes in place to uh, protect uh, our systems and our data. Uh, however, as it relates to that specific uh, study that you had mentioned, we meet regularly with uh, FSA. There's conversations that happen every single week and sometimes multiple times a day. The collaboration is we are in a, a much better place than certainly when I first arrived. I know that our CISOs, meaning my CISO, Stephen Hernandez, and uh, Dan Commons over at uh, Federal Student Aid, they touch base on a daily basis. Uh, there's communication between their teams, which has helped a lot uh, as it relates specifically to like security operations, uh, the centers communicating together and collaborating together. That has changed significantly, which is wonderful. Uh, I mentioned earlier about the regular uh, high-value asset briefings that we have, which, of course, I can't go into too depth. But what I will say is, as I was mentioning earlier with the scorecard, we walk through every single vulnerability uh, that we see just to make sure that those systems are in the best cyber health uh, that they can be. In addition to this, uh, one of the things that's been really fascinating for the last several months is I actually have a, an office over at Federal Student Aid, and I try to uh, spend dedicated time there each week to be more engaged and involved with what's going on uh, so that it's uh, more hands-on with what's going on there. But the, the partnership has been really good. When you talk about data and data security, one of the things that, that comes to mind, obviously, is the move to two-factor authentication. We're seeing that in several different places, whether it's with some payroll services or whether it's with something like usajobs.gov. Is, is Where is that in terms of not just for federal student aid, for students to log on to systems to check their, their efforts, but also just more generally within education? Do you, do you have 
is two-factor authentication than the, the norm, generally speaking? I would say so, for certainly for uh, internal systems. External systems, that's where I was mentioning earlier about wanting to extend uh, not only uh, CDM services, but some of the other security capabilities that we have for the department uh, external as well. Jason, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can jump back into some of the IT modernization t discussion and specifically around uh, data visualization and IT visualization. My guest is Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. One of the reasons we're talking today is you've been kind enough to take part in an online chat that's coming up on October 10th on federalnewsradio.com. And one of the reasons why I asked you is because of the efforts you guys are making around and the progress you're making around uh, technology business management, TBM. But more broadly, you guys have really are out in front with a with something called you're calling an IT visualization roadmap, and and it gets back to the old my favorite topic enterprise architecture. We won't bore people with the as is and the to be, but in many ways, you've taken that boring static wire diagram effort and make it really dynamic and valuable. And not not to say to those EA folks that wasn't valuable before, but I think it, it's such a, a win for education. It's a win for the government. So let's first give me the 50,000 foot view of the IT visualization roadmap, and then we can dig deeper. We started with the as is, and then we got to the to be. And from there, we went to a roadmap, uh, which really actually gets into the, the weeds of how do we actually get to the to be. And then the next phase of that, as I was mentioning earlier, is really going to be about which we're, we're meeting with the system owners to walk through the specifics of how does that actually work and working with them to make sure that we're taking the appropriate steps to make it happen. Because we're talking about a, a multi-year plan uh, is something that's taking a lot of planning. So we have actually just recently kicked off where uh, TBM and what's been really fascinating about it is, again, we started with my budget. So we started uh, with a smaller budget, and we wanted to be able to use it as more of a proof of concept to demonstrate the value. The focus initially was on cost transparency, making sure that we could, we, and we know where the money goes, right? But we wanted to be able to display it and demonstrate it. We also paired it with the IT visualization to make sure that as we're looking at modernization efforts on whether or not we're going to invest in something or we're going to modernize something or we're going to eliminate something, it's really helpful to know that through TBM we're tying the cost directly to the visualization so that as we make changes and say, okay, let's say we're going to consolidate these 25 cloud service providers down to eight. What does that mean from a cost standpoint? And then earlier as I was talking about the cost models, which modernization efforts are more cost effective or quicker to implement. So it's interesting you started with your own budget internally. Is that just kind of the idea of drink your own champagne? I know it's usually eat their own dog food, but we'll, we'll, we'll class it up a little bit. The intent behind that was was twofold, really. It was, in reality, it was one, is I didn't, I didn't have to worry about getting approvals in terms of, you know, if I'm impacting everyone else's uh, IT budget, I, there was a lot of communication, as you mentioned earlier, that would be required. And I knew that I could make the changes that I needed to make without having to, to worry about that. So it was a safe safe place to, to test. I also wanted to make sure that there was value to it. I know that there's, you know, an OMB uh, mandate heading towards implementing TBM. 
in the cost pools and the IT towers, but I wanted to demonstrate the value of, okay, great. And that's where we partnered with the IT visualization and paired those together and very quickly saw that if we continue down the path that we're headed down from an IT modernization standpoint, we're looking at saving up to over a, a couple hundred million dollars a year in the next five years. It'll take longer probably than that. I know uh, based on the cost models I was telling about earlier, uh, it'll, it'll probably take five to eight years to actually fully you know, receive that amount of return. But at this point, that's what we're doing. But even if you start, your return is a few million a year, not a couple hundred million, that's a big difference. I mean, you guys are not a big budget agency. You don't, you're not, so if you could take that few, we talked about MGT earlier and TMF earlier, if you could, if you could somehow find and save a few tens of millions of dollars, that's, that's a big impact. And I imagine that's part of the reason you're doing it. But the other piece is the modernization piece is you have to know where you are to know where you want to go. So talk a little bit about what you found in that IT visualization roadmap. I remember uh, highlighting the, the 20 different cloud providers. I think now you said that's up to 25 now or something to that effect. Uh, yes. At the time, you know, we weren't finished evaluating everything. So we, we have 25. So that was one of the, the real shockers. And again, it, it wasn't really a shock. It was just more of a, wow, I can't believe we have this. And then to, and I know we've talked a bit about security, that's an awful lot of attack surface. Uh, so one of the key things that we're, we're looking at and that's really driving the modernization efforts, one is, of course, to be more efficient and streamline our efficiencies there, but it's also to reduce our, our cyber threat. And some of the things that we found, like we know the number of systems that uh, have PII in our environment, and as a result of our efforts and the modernization plan, we're looking at reducing the number of systems that we have that house PII in half. So there's that. We also found that we have some information dissemination hosting platforms. We have 25 of them. So we're looking at, from a modernization standpoint, of reducing those to a much smaller number, to around seven. And that you know, alone, the cost savings there, and then the burden of having to go through 25 different, that will be helpful as well. I had mentioned earlier about the 284 systems, and we're looking at reducing that by 100 over the next five years. That will help us as well. Uh, some of the other things that we found is we found that there were a lot of manual processes. Part of the uh, the visualization process not only mapped the systems and mapped the dependencies, it aligned them also with whether or not there was, you know, uh, legislative requirements or whether or not there was policy requirements or whether or not it was part of uh, an administration priority. So it gave me the information so that I knew, hey, you shouldn't touch this or you could touch this or if you have to touch this, you need to make sure that you're aware of this. But some of the, the, the other uh, key part of that was it identified what are the, manu the systems that have manual processes. And we're looking at, one, those are easy targets of, okay, we've got 40 pro manual processes that we're looking at reducing to 15. And those are specifically focused around our grants and financial management specifically processes, but that is one of the key takeaways that we found is, one, we've got a lot of cloud, which again, I've talked about cloud consolidation. We've got a lot of systems that we knew that we have P with PII that we have opportunities to uh, reduce. 
And then we have a lot of manual processes that we can also automate through modernization to help make our organization more efficient. It surprises me that you talk about 40 manual processes. This is where somebody somewhere in your organization has to key in data and hit a button or do the statistics in some sort of spreadsheet, but it's not pulling data from the authoritative source. That person has to go find that data and then do the calculations and, and do the work. Th that's what you mean by manual processes or, or what? I would say that's part of it. In some cases, there, there are automated systems that don't talk to each other, and it's the manual process of taking it from one system to the other system. So it's not necessarily that it's all human intervention as in typing the data or retyping the data. It's more that there are systems that could be and should be uh, interoperable and working together. Now that's the back end. What about the front end where if I'm a student who's looking for aid, are those also some of those manual processes that you have to address, or is that more that's the modernization of the program mission areas? I would say that's more of the program mission areas, but we're actively involved in that as well. Because it just it's 40 seems I can't tell if that's a lot or a little compared to everyone else. Education is not a big place. And just to be just to clarify, that's specific on systems issues or systems processes. That's not that's not talking about business processes at all. Right, right. It's just this between systems. Got it. Yes. Okay, great. Let me dig into a couple other things here because one of the things you mentioned a couple times was this idea of 284 systems reduced by 100, and and the, the idea behind that is you have systems that are either old that that are end of life or systems that are duplicative, and, and those are kind of the driving factors? Uh, yes. We have systems that, and in some cases, there are systems that are required to be duplicative. In some instances, you know, you have different offices that have systems that provide similar functions that we could look at consolidating into, uh, into one, or in some cases, you know, maybe five or six systems that are providing very similar functions that we can consolidate into one. Uh, it, which, again, that's where the value of the visualization already has come to play because it's allowed us to bring those system owners together to talk about, well, how, how are you using this? And in many instances, we're seeing that the way that they're using it isn't always the same. Uh, but then the question is, is there a solution out there, uh, first starting with shared service, of course, but is there a service out there that could provide and meet those requirements for both and we could end up paying for one instead of having to maintain two systems. Jason, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can jump back into some of the IT modernization discussion and specifically around uh, data visualization and IT visualization. My guest is Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com, 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com, 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. One of the reasons we're talking today is you were been kind enough to take part in an online chat that's coming up on October 10th on federalnewsradio.com. You did all this work over the last year, year and a half, to understand where you're at today. And you know where you want to go, I think, you know, the 2B. Now, how do you get there? Because I think one of the biggest challenges is, is knowing where to start because everything needs help or nothing needs help. Some things are modern or everything's legacy. So from your experiences, how did you guys decide where to start? This goes back to the comment you made earlier about communication. It's really about communicating the business value, and not just the business value, but also how is this going to help the public? How it, One, how is it going to help the department achieve its mission, but then how is it going to actually help the public? And we're tying the modernization effort specifically to that so that when we speak to the system owners, everyone, which we all know everyone wants to do the right thing, so 
we're starting from there and just communicating out. And so the buy-in is really about just doing the right thing. It's how do we do it the right way? And that, again, is through collaboration and partnership with the system owners and the business owner. Can you maybe give me an example? You've met with a system owner, and they talked about a legacy system, and you said, uh-oh, that one needs to get modernized because of the vulnerabilities or because of the criticalness of the, to the mission, and that's where you started? Or did you take all your data from all the mission owners and then you know, laid them out on your table and said, which one is, is, the, is, our t- is among our top priorities? Of course, from a security standpoint, anytime if, if there's something that's specific about security, that is always going to go to the top of the list of these are the things that we need to do right away, and that, that takes precedence. But really, we're taking a holistic view to make sure we're looking across. And as I was mentioning, the work that we're doing in assessing the, the data that we have now that we've done these assessments through visualization and planning is really where is the quickest return uh, for the most value? Because we want the most, I mean, and again, it, it's in a way it's more of a probability impact uh, matrix, if you want, where we're looking at what has the most impact, what costs the least that has the most impact, those sorts of things are going into our decision making. It's not just about security. Certainly everything that is security is at the top of the list. Uh, but we're looking holistically about, okay, and then in some cases there may be like a really small system that doesn't cost a lot of money, but the impact is really, really significant uh, to the department uh, or to the American public. And, of course, those are things we're focused on as well. Technology business management, TBM, has come up a a little bit during our conversation. I I know you're a big supporter of it. Can you maybe talk a little bit more broadly about where TBM fits into this entire effort? So TBM is not a silver bullet. It's really, for me, it is it is a tool. It is one of the tools that we use to help inform my decisions. And the desired end state, or I don't even want to call it an end state, but the desired next state would be being able to share that across the department so that all of the system owners and all of the stakeholders and principal offices in the department really understand uh, their IT spend and the value that it drives for the department so that they can make decisions and those decisions are informed uh, based on the data that we actually have on, okay, you know, you're spending X amount of money on this, it's costing you this amount, this is the value that it's providing, do you want to continue that? Do you want to reduce that? Do, or do you want to enhance that? Uh, those are the types of decisions that I'm uh, looking forward to TBM delivering to us. Right now, we actually just started phase two of our TBM implementation. As I mentioned earlier, phase one was more about uh, IT cost transparency, uh, and it was specifically for my budget. Uh, going forward, we are actually bringing in the entire IT budget uh, which for this year's was around $689 million. And so we're wrapping all of that into there. And then, uh, of course, the bill of IT, where I can actually sit down and meet with uh, the principal office and walk through, this is what your what your, your office is spending uh, on IT, and these are the systems and the value that it delivers to you. What kind of advice do you give to other agencies who maybe are still in that phase one, whatever, whatever their phase one is? What, what's a big lesson or two that maybe you learned from phase one that you're applying to phase two that you could help others with? The first thing I would surely recommend is making sure that you have enough people who are trained. And there's a lot of training out there, books out there. There's a lot online. I would definitely make sure I had five different individuals who went through uh, training. And uh, it, it was really beneficial because literally the, the range of skills required, I didn't need 
really uh, senior individuals who uh, were going through the training. I had a couple that did go through the training, but I just literally, I would in uh, I would definitely encourage educating and training people before you start the process. Uh, because when we actually had our kickoff meeting, one of the key takeaways that was shared with us is that our team was ready to go, meaning we already understood what we were doing, why we were doing it. It was really figuring out how we were going to do it with what we had. So that would be the first. Uh, the second thing is I would probably start small. That's, that's key. Uh, because if you start too big, then maybe you're not going to see the value, and then you really need to be able to demonstrate the value. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we started relatively small with my budget uh, that allowed us to work through some of the challenges before starting too big and biting off more than we could chew. Uh, those would probably be the, the, the couple that I would surely recommend. Uh, I also think having a clear goal in mind, uh, and again, through the process of implementing, you figure and walk through what those things are. But that would be really key as well, and that's all of those things can be done before you actually start implementing. Excellent advice. Unfortunately, we are out of time. We could talk longer. And as a reminder to my audience, they can ask you their own questions. They could reach you right through our online chat that's coming up on October 10th on federalnewsradio.com. You need to register. It's free, of course, but you can find all the information there. Jason Gray is the Chief Information Officer of the Education Department. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for your time today, and we look forward to the online chat coming up on October 10th. Thank you. This is a great experience, and uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share some of what the department is doing. Very nice. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 a.m. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes. 